1: Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us. And before we get started with this week's special guest, I want to remind you of all the homework that you have to do. Make sure you get on iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. Those things are blowing up. They're helping this podcast grow. And your ratings and reviews mean a lot to us. They let us know how to make the show better. And of course, they help the popularity of the show, and that gets more people to tune in and listen. I want to remind you we have sponsors. Make sure you're supporting them all. A list of our sponsors are on our website, hazardground.com, also on hazardground.com previous guests, more picks, more bio information, everything you need to know. And of course, make sure you check us out on all the other ways you can listen to The Hazard Ground, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, all that's there. This week, our guest is Trey Grissom. Trey is a Marine captain who has deployed to Afghanistan after attending the Naval Academy, and Trey currently serves at Marine Corps Barracks in Washington, D.C., and handles all of the honor guard ceremonies for the National Capital Region for the Marine Corps. Certainly one of the more high-profile jobs, and one of the more interesting jobs in all of the military, because every branch has their own sort of honor guard, if you will, that handles all the uh, you know ceremonies for the president and things of that nature. So uh let's welcome him into the podcast he is trey grissom trey thanks for being here man
0: absolutely thank you it's a it's a pleasure and an honor to be here
1: all right so tell us uh naval academy how did you get your start in the military so
0: that's uh, actually kind of interesting because i uh my granddad was in the army uh back in korea uh did a short stint and other than that um didn't really have any sort of influences uh in the family that kind of led me towards making that decision but what did uh, was the, the opportunity to go play football at, at Naval Academy and kind of late junior year, early senior year in high school, uh, coaches started coming down and, and they kind of had a relationship with, with my head coach and still didn't really know what, what it was all about or what the back end of, of the four years would look like. Uh, but basically long story short, had the opportunity, weighed my options uh, there, state schools, a couple other opportunities to play football, uh, and then after talking with my dad, he was like, "Yeah, man, you know, you'll have a job coming out of college, and you know, you either be a second lieutenant or a uh, or, or an ensign in the Navy." And I was like, "Well, you know, what in the world is this? What is this actually going to mean?" But then when I you know, when I showed up, it all kind of started uh, coming into uh, me leading leading me down the road that i that i wanted to but just interesting basically wouldn't have happened if i wouldn't have had the opportunity to play football because i don't think that i would have had uh the interest at the time to join the military so
1: well were you getting looked at by other like regular colleges for football as well i mean you know was, was that something that was on the radar for you to definitely play football
0: yeah yeah i had a couple uh one AA offers a couple d2 offers and then i had preferred walk-ons to uh North Carolina State University University of uh, Chapel, or North Carolina Chapel Hill uh, and then Virginia Tech um, and those kind of came on late but I was like well let me go take this opportunity to have you know school paid for play division one football uh, which is kind of the story behind a lot of the guys that wind up at Navy you know that's kind of their one uh, you know their one or two D1 offers uh, and, and then it kind of t- took off from there so
1: well, if you had had a legit offer from, you know, Virginia Tech or North Carolina State, would you have still think you would chosen the Naval Academy?
0: I think that I honestly would have gone to North Carolina State. I was a grew up a state fan. I was 10, 15 minutes down the road and um, going there to watch watch games growing up. It was it, it would have just been an honor in a sense too, to, you know, be from the hometown if you will and then be playing college ball right down the road it would have been closer to family um and that was kind of my mindset at 17 18 years old uh, but looking back obviously super fortunate uh and, and would not have changed a thing with the way things wound up turning out
1: so when you get to the naval academy i mean football is probably in the front of your mind and all this military stuff comes second what were your expectations as you enrolled as a freshman or a, a a plebe if you will
0: yeah plebe year that was a, that was a doozy for sure um leaving home at 18, which is, you know, a lot of kids that age, that's all they want to do is get out of their hometown. And so in that regard, it was it was neat, but showing up on uh, induction day or I day, as they call it, back in June of 07, it was uh, a pretty traumatic experience that day, stepping away from my parents, similar to, I guess, the way uh, when Marines enlist, uh, you know, going down to Paris Island to get on the buses to go step on the yellow footprints was kind of the same thing. As soon as you entered, we entered alumni hall, which is our big basketball gymnasium on, uh, on campus. It was just yelled at here, run there, do this, stand here, look that way, don't look at me, don't speak, yes sir, no ma'am, all that good stuff. Uh, and then that was kind of how it all kicked off. It wasn't just a, hey, this is welcome to college. Here's your dorm room, blah, blah, blah. It was, you're gonna run around all day, getting the gear you need. And this is gonna be about an eight, 10 hour process. And then you'll see your room at the end of the day have a chance to hug your parents on the uh, the cheek once you get your head shaved and you're in your little uh, uniform that they put you up in, and then they're off and, and you are focused on their uh, indoctrination, uh, if you will, uh, for the next four to six weeks uh, in Annapolis
1: in the summertime. At what so, point did you think that you had made a mistake?
0: Uh, you know, I've always kind of been the type that once I start something, I'm going to finish it, and similar to, I think uh, – most of the folks that you've had on the show so far, uh, kind of this, that same mentality. So I don't know if I ever thought I made a mistake. I just knew that it was going to take a lot of guts and a lot of willpower and a lot of you know mentorship from those around me to to pull us all through.
1: All right, we'll get back to the football part later. I do want to discuss a little bit more of your, yeah, sure. your time at the Naval Academy because – for some, see, you're similar to me. Like when I went into ROTC, I had no idea what I was doing. Like I, I just signed up to pay for college, and this was prior to nine eleven. And it was like, I'm going to do this because it's the fastest way to point A to point B, and that's pay for college, and I'll figure out the rest as I go along. But I didn't really know what I was getting into. So as you kind of made your way through your first year, <clears throat> did you figure out what you wanted to be in the Navy, and, and how did that process go?
0: Yeah, it actually was fairly quick. Um, looking at once, I had a chance to be around some of the upperclassmen football players and assess personality types. And the class, the, the 07 class, 08 classes after they graduated, what all those guys went and did. And the guys that once I started getting recruited and started gaining interest in the Academy, what certain players chose to do with their service assignment and showing, showing up basically day two and seeing the way the Marines uh, carried themselves, interacted with the uh, the plebes and even the other, you know, sophomores, juniors, seniors that were training us. I was kind of set on wanting to become a Marine and kind of coupling that with watching the actual Marines and seeing what upperclassmen and the influences that those guys had on me kind of led me to pretty early on knowing that I wanted to be a Marine and kind of always stuck with wanting want to be an infantry guy. And, and so that's kind of how it all started.
1: Did did anybody try to talk you into a different direction once you had figured out that you wanted to be a marine?
0: Yeah, and this is funny because uh, my buddies will still pick at me every now and then, uh, which nothing against my uh, my submariner buddies because I've got even guys that I played ball with that, that went subs. But uh, they tried to try to get me to go in that direction. A couple of the company officers, um, when it comes time to them, because I mean subs, they they kind of get the least. Least amount of interest, but they throw a, uh, a hefty sign-on bonus at you ah. to get you to go that route. Because you go down to Nuke School, and that's, I mean, by all accounts, very, very, very tough down in Charleston. Um, they they basically come out, I think, six credits shy of a of a Nuke Power degree. Yeah, so it's it's uh, it looks it looks good on paper, um, but then again, didn't really fit my personality type and growing up, kind of the way I did, in football and being, you know, type A guy knew that I'd want to surround myself with with uh, with infantry Marines so they were never able to fully sway me to go in, in, the, in that direction
1: what exactly does one do with a nuke power degree I mean is, is are you now authorized to push a button is that what it is
0: so I think it just has <laughs> yeah I, I think it I think it has to do with understanding all the, the systems of how uh, the, the nuclear engines work on uh, both uh, surface vessels and in sub submarines so well i
1: think most of us understand push button mass detonation end of story there's my nuke power degree right there okay and that's
0: probably that's (laughs) probably why that's probably why i'm a grunt
1: (laughs) there you go okay so you finish your four years at the naval academy uh and you're going to be an officer in the marine corps when you look back on your experience at the naval academy i mean obviously you have great memories there but what stood out to you the most What
0: stood out to me the most definitely would be just a couple quick ones would be my roommates got settled in with and I actually had last dibs on roommates freshman year because I've got taken out of plebe summer two weeks uh, early to go to football camp, which was not any easier, uh, even though they all said it would be Uh, two a days and 107 degrees wasn't fun.
1: No, (laughs) But but, uh,
0: definitely my roommates I had three roommates. Uh, living in tight spaces. I'm actually the best man at uh, one of my roommates' weddings uh, here coming up and then the relationships that I was able to develop with the my own classmates uh, and then the guys that were graduating a year after us on the football team. Um, just being able to really get close I mean guys from all over the country meeting their families at games uh, and, and really I mean I keep in touch with even their families to this day uh, six, seven years removed from from it all. And it's just real powerful that we still all have each other's backs, uh, just due to the the type of, and the caliber of of guys that that come out of that place.
1: So you're going through the Naval Academy from 2007 to 2011, and meanwhile there are two wars just raging through this entire time. And you're going to go be an infantryman in the Marines. You know what's next down the road. What was kind of your thought process as you're going through? this whole collegiate experience, knowing that that's the end state.
0: I think it's just something that we all, we all knew that we needed to do. Um, we, we, we sort of had a calling that that was our opportunity, you know, the chance to, to play division one football and be a part of, uh, of one of the service academies that our, that our country has to offer. Um, understanding that, you know, we're fighting, fighting in two different countries and, and, and not really knowing what, what all is going to come of it. You know, are you going to miss it? Are we going to get through our training in time? Are the units that we're going to go to even going to be deploying there? Um, and, and seeing kind of the, the end game, it wasn't really a clear sight picture. Um, although 08, 09, 10 time frame, things were still going pretty strong. Um, and then graduating in, you know, year year and a half of, of training to come on on the back end of that all of us just wanted to get there uh, but it was kind of coming down where you know whether we were going to get there or not w- was kind of the, the the question
1: so there was, I mean, you're talking about the state overall of the wars. At that point in time, Iraq was running down. So again, Iraq closes out in 2011 for the most part. Uh, I was yep. there for it, so I know. And you're talking about the year and a half train up after you got out of the Naval Academy to go through your initial Marine officer training. So now you're moving into 2012 and, and you're hearing 2013 Afghanistan is winding down. And you're telling me that you guys had a sense that you wanted to go, but you didn't think you were going to get a shot? Exactly.
0: Exactly. And that's wound up, or that is what wound up happening to the majority of my peers. Uh, Because I did a six month stint of temporary signed duty coaching the sprint football team at Navy uh, after I graduated through December. Checked into the basic school at Quantico, and that's a six month course there, uh, basically where you compete for your military occupational specialty. And then um, from there, summer of 2012, had about a month and a half off to get ready for the infantry officer's course, which is there. And then I graduated December of 12, January 13. I checked into one nine and found out we were going to Afghanistan uh, in September and we would be the second to last infantry battalion from the East coast to be down at Helmand out of Leatherneck, uh, basically closing it down, waiting for Victor one two to come in and really bring uh, Leatherneck down, collapse everything down to camp bastion, which was the British base, Adjacent to us, off to the east, and basically bring everything home. Um, so knowing that I had a shot was was amazing, and uh, and it was uh, a good good learning experience there. But uh, a lot of my peers didn't didn't have that chance to to get over there.
1: And just for clarification, what Trey is talking about, Helmand Province. When he says Helmand, that's what he's referring to the Helmand Province in Afghanistan, and Camp Leatherneck, as you referred to it, Leatherneck was a a base there. And when it happened in the drawdown in Iraq, they slowly started closing bases and consolidating units until eventually they could completely get out of the uh, the area of operations. So, just for clarification, as far as Trey is talking about, when you when you found out you were going, what were your feelings? Were you excited?
0: yeah I was uh, fortunate for the opportunity uh, although my family was not so psyched and I was recently engaged uh, to my wife now uh, which we, had, we just had a uh, our first child on on April 14th on Good Friday uh, and luckily she stuck with me through it all uh, up to this point but I uh, got married or we had set a date for I think may uh, I think I know may 18th of uh, of 13. And so checked in in January, left for a couple of months to do mountain warfare training, uh, came back, got married and knew that, you know, between May and September, it was time to be a, you know, figure out how to be a husband and also to, to gear these Marines towards uh, going over and, and fighting, uh, you know, for, in a couple of different manners, not really knowing what to expect based on the intelligence reports and understanding what, our operate or area of operation exactly would be like so
1: before we get to the military stuff what did your wife say to you before you left
0: she wasn't I mean she was with me even before I uh, selected infantry and, and okay so
1: she knew this whole deal it.
0: Yeah, she, she knew um, what what she was kind of getting herself into um, we kind of went back and forth on it um, but we were able to compromise and and she's uh she's stronger than I am because I mean obviously we know the type of spouse it takes to get through the kind of stuff that we have to deal with. So,
1: you end up getting orders to go to Afghanistan. What are you told prior to leaving? What's the mission and what were your expectations?
0: Uh, well, it's, it was basically that we would be operating out of Camp Weatherneck and for those that had fought uh, in Helmand, uh, you know, saying in Marja, anywhere to the north, the south, east, slash, Kargai, all those areas uh, kind of adjacent to the green zone, uh, if you will, which is the Helmand River Valley. Um, and it was a good distance to the, uh, to the east of, of Leatherneck, but that's where we, where we flew into, which most units flew into, and then they push out to their forward operating bases or their, um, or wherever their small outposts would be. But that's exactly where we were operating out of for, for the whole eight months that we were there. Um, and it was, um, knowing that we'd be going to, to Leatherneck, the guys that had already deployed saying, ah, this is just going to be, you know, eating at the chow hall in the morning, not really doing much. And basically just providing perimeter security. Uh, But as things started to develop and things changed, once we got there, uh, my company actually was fortunate enough to be tasked with a, uh, almost a, a, a raid type mission that, uh, Helleborn operations uh, and the only other units that were doing it were our uh, our Marstock units that were over there and the British para regiments. So the, the British special force guys that were there at the time. And so the, the first two months were a company basically getting tasked by division by the Marine expeditionary force. And we, we had any assets that we wanted pushed to us for the planning process and for, um, you know, pre-mission, during mission, post-mission, all that, all the intelligence collection assets, uh, close air support, um, indirect fire support, all that good stuff. And that's where uh, coming into that and and getting prepared for that was tough on the short stint when we found out that that's what we were going to be doing back stateside, Um, going and refreshing on Hellborn operations, not really having done too many – too many practice runs, if you will, back stateside in order to prepare for something like that. So it was hit the ground, uh, boots running, and I think uh, we were there for two and a half weeks uh, and and our first mission popped. And so it was definitely a quick turnaround to get prepared, to get everything squared away, do a turnover, understand the areas that we were going into and kind of get the battle rhythm down for, for what was going. So it was definitely drinking from a fire hose.
1: And just but one that, more piece that, of clarification that. for everybody as far as Helmand Province mm-hmm. is concerned. Uh, if you find Kandahar on a map directly to the west, take like your thumb, your left thumb, and it's kind of the shape of a thumb that touches from, Kandahar would be the center at your knuckle and goes all the way to the southern border of Pakistan, right in the middle of central Afghanistan. So it's a pretty mm-hmm. large area. Uh, and the reason I point that out is because there there aren't, Afghanistan, the territory the layout is so mountainous and the terrain is so tough to traverse that there weren't a lot of, bases in a given area if you weren't near a metropolis so i guess where i'm leading with this is because of the location of where you guys were how big or how big is the area that you were in your area of operations how big was it
0: so it, give or take but it was roughly 200 square kilometers um, which is obviously bigger than you can really do anything with as far as getting yeah. involved with, with the local populace and really establishing a good rapport um, and so it was after we did the the, the, the Helleborn operations uh, for those first couple months, we transitioned to to mounted patrolling operations. And you're talking you have to drive once you leave out of the uh, the northern or southern gate uh, at Camp Weatherneck to get to, to, to some of these villages. It would take an hour just to drive to be able to dismount to see the first uh, local village outside of the area. Because at this point, all the, the local – uh, operating bases and 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 combat outposts had collapsed down to Leatherneck, and I didn't mention that earlier, but so it basically increased our surface area that we had to cover, but it also allowed uh, the Taliban to to collapse closer to Leatherneck and to kind of infiltrate some of these villages that had been pretty heavily protected um, months and years past.
1: And to give people a little bit more, I, I guess, you know, visual representation of Afghanistan, as Trey mentions, how long it would take it to, to find two villages, it's feasible that there are two villagers who live less than 10 miles apart who would never cross paths in their lifetime just because of the terrain of Afghanistan. They would never know the other one was there because unless they walked it and traversed over the, a mountain sideways, essentially, they would never find anybody else. And that's kind of the, the terrain that you're dealing with. And, and when you're that you know obstacle is there for you guys what other challenges did it present that you weren't prepared for
0: shoot um talk about mine roller recovery for one uh we we used to break mine rollers uh, at the rapid when we started uh, having to drive around in, in said terrain and you're right um i mean these folks use they have their little uh similar to you know, like nissan frontiers little bongo trucks yep. uh, small motorcycles uh, for, for those that, that are kind of unaware of the type of vehicles that they have. But yeah, I mean, it's all, you know, small little villages and they're, uh, they're either farmers and they're making their, uh, their opium. (laughs) They're, they're, they're farming their fields and they're lucky if they have a a water pump in order to be able to, to water their fields. Everything else was just uh, pretty much blackout conditions. They're out there up there the day and then in during the night and never really saw anybody out at night. Um, so that would obviously raise suspicions but yeah there's uh two huge uh wadis which are basically just uh, for for everyone else kind of like a river basin that dried out and some of them were uh, almost a mile wide uh in between some of these villages just to the east of of camp leatherneck and traversing those to be able to get down in them across to the other side pretty tough for us but for the the smaller vehicles and um the the local population they kind of used those as roads because they were kind of flat themselves they didn't really have to to do too much but
1: uh, when you were there did you find that the fighters were still as the the you know the the bad guys when i say fighters were still as determined as ever because i mean you know i'm not as familiar with afghanistan as i am with iraq i i did a couple of short stints in afghanistan but i, I didn't spend a lot of time there so i'm just curious how much they were still in the fight by the time you had gotten there,
0: so they were able to really test the waters, uh, and I think they were still uh, as passionate as ever about you know keeping us keeping us honest, uh, you know, kind of restricting our movement per se, just just like we were them. And they knew they, they knew that our ROEs had been clamped down. They knew it was it was tough for us to fight them. They knew that they could get in and out, uh, you know, shoot, move a lot easier and a lot quicker than than we had the ability to. So. Closer, closer to the, the green zone areas, the, the, more, uh, or the, the more restrictive areas, I guess you could say, based on our uh, hires, uh, commanders intent and some of the areas that we weren't really allowed to go. If you ever push in there based on intelligence coming down for a um, high value individual um, or any sort of operation that needed to be addressed to where we'd have to push into these areas, we'd go pretty large scale, at least a company size element. You know, um, roughly 150, 200 Marines um, and uh, Afghan special forces uh, or just the local Afghan army with all the enablers included. And it would be I mean, you get into some pretty some pretty hairy, hairy fights out there. Mm Um, but they wouldn't really collapse too much on Leatherneck because of the, the security posture. And you know, they just, they knew they couldn't come within about five clicks of the, the base to really try to decisively engage anyone. But they would absolutely decisively engage you if you were about you know, 15 clicks out and, and kind of a few terrain features in where the, the big G bosses and the, the blimps with the cameras could see, um uh, in, in order to allow them to, to shoot and move and get in and out.
1: You know, how much did your Marine training prepare you for? I mean, I don't ask how much it prepared you for combat. I just, I'm just i talking about the mental portion of it. How much right. did physically, I know Marines are always ready. It's just what you guys do. But how much did it prepare you mentally for combat?
0: I think the, the infantry officers course uh, does a phenomenal job of preparing you mentally uh, as well as tactically. Uh, I mean, just. The amount of information you have to process, uh, the, the type of ranges and with the assets, uh, combined arms, everything that, that they're able to give to the students really does uh, prepare you well. I mean, the first month or so is kind of all you know, individual, l- a lot of, carrying a lot of weight, moving long distances, working that mental toughness piece, um, trying to beat timelines, kind of just mind game type stuff, um, hike out to a range, shoot, hike back. And and just not a lot of not a lot of rest time, not a lot of downtime. And then it's just on to the next uh, next mission. And so it was uh, back to back to back, not a lot of time to really relax or really gather your thoughts, if you will, because the, the next thing was coming down the pipe. So to pack as much as they were able to and the, the 10, 11 weeks that they're afforded uh, or allotted for each class, it really does force you mentally to, to sharpen what you're able to process, putting out products, being able to gather uh, your your marines and at this point it's it's all your peers. so uh, you know being able to lead your peers, uh, other other officers is in a sense a little bit tougher than you know leading 18 year old guys that, that just hit the fleet um, kind of the same as you once you first get to your to your first unit.
1: How much in in that moment to be ready to fight, to you know make the de- the decisive action to pull the trigger and and things of that nature. I mean, was there any hesitation on your part?
0: No, there there never was. I mean, because in the in the heat of it, it really um, you, you fall back to the the level of training that that you've worked up to, and basically the only difference is is that instead of fighting at or shooting at mechanical green. Uh, silhouette targets uh, or just trying to put artillery on a tire stack you now it's you can feel you feel the heat of the moment you can feel the rounds snapping you know that you're in it and it's basically just working through the same thought processes uh in in that type of environment so you're already used to the the internal friction i mean you got all your gear you're tired you're hungry you're hot this and that uncomfortable already been used to that um Used to a an instructor yelling at you to to speed up, to get this, to get that. You need to do this. All right, this just happened over here. How are you going to address that situation? Uh, what are you going to do with your Marines over here? So, the friction of an environment such as you know actually fighting in combat is created by the the staff that trains you to say, hey, yep, you passed. You're an infantry officer. Now you can go to the fleet. Uh, and we think that in the event that you have to face uh, the type of scenarios that we just created for you in combat that, that you'll succeed.
1: Is there an engagement that happened during your deployment that stands out?
0: Uh, yeah, there, well, there, there were a couple. Um, the, the one that uh, obviously is, is kind of tough for me and some of the guys uh, we were out one day, this was uh, two days before Christmas, December 23rd of 2013. And we had, been engaged uh, by a sniper uh, relatively close uh, to to Leatherneck. Uh, a couple of days had seen him out uh, the other platoons uh, that were out at the time this area we wanted to go in and, and, and kind of try to weed him out uh, talk to some locals kind of figure out what we could what we could do to try to start building building the package against this guy because um, it was a uh, uh, excuse me it was Later in the day, we had been out, uh, had a s- couple, heard a couple shots ring out uh, from the guys because basically what we do is we use the vehicles to cover uh, the, the dismounted movement and had been out for a while, started uh, an engagement my guys wanted to to pursue uh, because they had talked to a couple locals and knew kind of the direction that these guys were headed. So um, time really wasn't uh, of the essence so I said, yeah, we'll, we'll stay out a little bit longer and then pushed uh, right about to the time that we were going to get back up, uh, remount the trucks and head back. And one of my squad leaders, uh, Sergeant Daniel Vasilian, he's from uh, Abington, Massachusetts, um, just uh, just outside of Boston. Uh, he was shot uh, one round just outside of his uh, plate carrier, left side, itself, severed his pulmonary artery, and uh, and he bled out within about five minutes, it was nothing, nothing that any of us could do. Um, once he, once he was shot, he kind of exited a doorway. Uh, the uh, the shot came from within 400 meters, which was a lot closer than we're normally engaged uh, with small arms uh, and direct fire weapons and uh, caught in the bird. They tried their best. Um, and there was nothing they could do. Um, and so that was obviously a, uh, a tough ride back knowing that at this point in the war, an engagement like that small arms losing a guy uh, in that fashion uh, that was kind of a tough pill for for everyone to swallow uh, but the guy was a, a true warrior he actually did an interview the, the night prior uh, on December 22nd with a uh, combat camera that was in the same uh, outpost that we were uh, it's on D uh, again his name's Sergeant Daniel Sillian pretty powerful pretty powerful message that he spits out uh, the night before he uh, he was killed in action back in
1: 2013 did you when you look back on it do you regret the decision to stay out longer because you could have made a decision so now guys let's let it go no one got hit let's let's go back and just you know reset we'll go at him tomorrow
0: and that was kind of the the thought that I was wrestling with so hard was um for me I was, w- I was with the trucks uh, positioning the trucks because I had two very competent uh, non-commissioned officers out there with me that were running the show on the ground and by all accounts, the feedback was good. They said, Hey, sir, we, we've got, you know, we, we've got this guy kind of pattern. We, we know what to expect. Uh, some of the local nationals are, are, are giving us what we feel like is, is trustworthy uh, information. And so we'd like to be able to, to pursue um, just, just a bit. And really it kind of went against, I guess what our mission was overall, which was the, the local security of, of actual leather camp, Leatherneck. Um, but my hire was good with it. And uh, so didn't ever really feel like it was, it was the wrong decision. It was just um, not really putting a, a defense or a shield um, or kind of a barrier, if you will, in between where this guy actually took the shot from and where the dismounts were uh, on the ground.
1: Well, and just to kind of interject a a personal thought, and this applies more to combat than anything else, but we see it in all of the walks of life. People get so uh, caught up in the result of things and they think that it is definitive. And I I always try to tell people, you know, results don't always define whether it's a good decision or a bad decision. And, 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 as you just said, you checked with hire, you did all the things that you were supposed to do. Everybody was a thumbs up. Everyone is a go. You had the right people in the right place. There's no reason not to. And so from that standpoint, what happened was a bad result, but it wasn't a bad decision. And I think it's important to create that distinction.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and we you know, doing all the right things on the ground. Um, guys were um, doing, doing all the right things. I mean, proper reporting procedures. They were, uh, I mean, guys weren't out there just running and gunning, wild, wild west style, uh, if you will, and um, so it was. Yeah, it was a tough pill to swallow, just because of uh, knowing that hey, war's dying down. Um, you know, for for what really? Uh, well, and, not-
1: and sorry to cut you off, Trey, as well, but people need to understand something about combat for those who have never been there. When stuff like that happens, I, I told everybody, I said. I didn't survive two deployments because I did everything right, and those who didn't survive did something wrong. I right. didn't not sustain any serious injuries because I did everything right, and the people who, who did sustain serious injuries did something wrong. The combat is so unpredictable that you can do everything right and still have a bad result, and you can do everything wrong and still have a favorable result. That is the, the ultimate wild card that combat is, and there is no way to reconcile that, and it's different for everybody.
0: That is very, very true.
1: Very true. So beyond that, um, you know, you lose a guy. Was that the only guy you lost on your deployment?
0: Yeah, we had a couple others uh, in the battalion that didn't make it home. Um, but he was, yeah, the only one from our company that um, that uh, didn't make it back.
1: And what was the mood like after that? I mean, obviously no one's happy, but, I mean, did it change the overall morale of the deployment?
0: So what it actually did was it lit a spark. It lit a fire, and the rest of the – and my Marines uh, and the other – Two platoons because we had four platoons in our company, but our weapons platoon, which was that fourth platoon, had been distributed to the the line infantry platoons uh, to be machine gunners in our turrets, and uh, the mortarmen were basically just kind of riflemen, if you will, uh, and the assaultmen were essentially doing the same thing. They kind of would be specialized for company missions or higher missions, um, but it definitely lit a spark in the the other two platoons and, you know, they wanted to find this guy, obviously. And, and instead of kind of cowering down and guys saying, Oh man, like, this is, this is really what we could be facing life or death. Um, I think it really lit a spark and really wanted, really kind of put a, put a little drive in guys to really go out and, and work even that much harder, uh, not only for, you know, in his memory, but to make sure that, um, it, that it didn't happen again because we knew that there was a uh, at least a if not a school train somebody that had some pretty some pretty decent uh, designated marksmanship type training that was out there uh, looking to, to try to pick us off so
1: the next question i'm going to ask you is for a reason because it's going to service later on here in this episode but i assume that there was a memorial service for uh, the sergeant who was killed
0: There was, and it was actually that night. So uh, we we got back in, and the first thing, once we got our trucks back in the wire, a company commander came out, gave me a hug, kind of gave me a pat on the back, and I I pulled my Marines off to the side once we had gotten everything unloaded, and uh, we kind of spilled a few tears together. Uh, I mean, I definitely wore my emotions on my sleeve for that one, um, but, but didn't really care because, you know, I didn't need to try to act like I was somebody that I wasn't in front of my guys uh, because they always see right through that. So um, we were able to that night head over to uh, Camp Bastion. Uh, They did a dignified transfer. Uh, We did a memorial service, uh, watched his body loaded up. And I mean, it was basically anybody that was not decisively engaged in their line of work was out there from all branches, uh, both bases. Um, And so it was really nice to see the support um, to, to send him off back home to his family uh, and, and kind of bring closure to a a terrible situation relatively quickly. Uh, I think it kind of helps, helps some guys out. And then from that point on, we were able to uh, – and the Marines were able to kind of grieve together and lean on one another.
1: And, and you had this set up with the boots and the rifle and the dog tags and the kevlar and, the oh, yeah. and everything. Okay. That, that's standard for those – you can Google pictures of it uh, on the Internet and see it. And uh, The only reason I bring that question up is kind of to fast forward after your deployment – to your current assignment at Marine Barracks uh, in Washington D.C., where handling memorial ceremonies of fallen soldiers is one of the responsibilities you currently have, and the follow-up question is: Did that particular instance in Afghanistan and that service did it help you better serve in the role that you're in now?
0: It definitely brings it full circle uh, because I didn't I didn't understand how dignified transfers work, um, but for the Marines that come home, uh, and to include Staff Sergeant uh, Cardin that was uh, killed in action at Firebase Bell uh, in Iraq last year, uh, he was brought home, and uh, they all fly into Dover. And the Marines that come home are brought in by uh, Marine Barracks Washington Marines. Um, it's a couple-hour trip for our guys when they go up and they receive every every uh, Marine that comes home, whether they were killed in action uh, or whatever it may be, if they're you know just deployed. Uh, elsewhere or if they're, you know, Marine security guard duty anywhere in the world, they, they come home to Dover Air Force Base and, and, and are received by the barracks Marines. So understanding that that's how that process works now, going back and putting myself in, in my shoes, then it really makes it that much more special to know um, the type of, of Marines that are receiving our guys on the back end to be able to pass them off to, to their families um, so that they can be laid to rest either at Arlington or um, in their, their local uh, graveyard.
1: So when you had this job at Marine Barracks, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance for, you know, for lack of a better term for those listening, drone ceremony, as we call it in the military. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but And you get to do some cool things. You were at the inauguration um, for President Trump and you, you did this stuff there. You get some other great stuff. But the somber part of your job is is handling these ceremonies do you get numb to it at all
0: so in the thick of it all i guess in the hustle and bustle in the morning they are usually uh some days we'll have up to 3 uh and the marines actually do a lot more because uh the officers are required for uh, any officer whether it's a lieutenant up to um general uh but for you know the anybody pfc through uh all the enlisted marines um, they're those go on all the time. I mean, there's at least two or three of those a day and our world famous body bearers are usually out there every day, but um, the duty weeks where, where I'm assigned to go out um, the preparation phase and getting ready is kind of just making sure that all the Marines look sharp, that, that we have everybody we need, that the buses are on time. And then you get out there and you get set up and the family shows up and then it all hits you that this is the most important thing that we do. And it's not the, Thing where you have that many spectators like we do on our Friday evening parades at Marine Barracks, Washington Parade Deck or uh, Tuesday nights at Iwo Jima Memorial at, at Arlington uh, Park. But it hits you, I mean, it hits you as soon as they get out I mean, and you see the the, the next of kin uh, and then the rest of the family that shows up and them still going through the grieving process because now it's usually no earlier than four months um, from the time that the uh, Marine has passed away until they're able to be buried in Arlington. So the family has to relive that whole process again on that day. Um, And and so it's nice to be able to be there um, to represent their fallen loved one um, and to to lead them from either the the chapel there at Fort Myer or uh, we call them transfer points, where um, the, the casket's delivered to a caisson, which is pulled by horse, um, and that's manned by the old guard out of Fort Myers. Uh, Those the, uh, the soldiers, they'll body bearer strap up the the casket onto the caisson, and we march them, lead them to the grave site where the uh, the pastor or the uh, whoever's running the service does the gravesite memorial. Um, and then, and then we allow them to, uh, to give them full honors, um, and and all that and then, then march out and speak to the family and wish them well. And it's just, it's powerful. It's, It's powerful.
1: Do a lot of the same emotions come rushing back for you personally?
0: They do. And now given, given where we are, kind of back in the peacetime right now, we've got a lot of the, uh. World War II and Korea vets um, that have just lived wonderful lives and done many great things, um, and, and so not many KIAs right now. But you're just so happy to have a chance to to meet the families of, of these Marines that have served in wars so long ago and that, that have done so many incredible things, and just getting to to read their biographies uh, or you know an award citation, and, and get a chance to 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 see the families and and all the support that comes out on, you know, on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday afternoon. I mean, it's just, it's heartwarming to, to see that because these aren't just on, you know, Saturdays when everybody has time off. So,
1: well, I'm glad you emotionally uplifted this a little bit because uh, it was hard to take a turn there, but I do want to move on uh, from your job at Marine Barracks because obviously, again, let's just reiterate, it, it's just such a special thing and, and it can be emotional and it can be very tough, but there are a lot of rewarding things that you do and, and there's nothing better, I would think, at this point in time than meeting a proud family of a World War II vet or a Korean War vet and, and being able to shake their hand and just say thank you because, uh, you know, everybody f- kind of forgets now that those wars <laughs> actually happened and, uh, you know, it's just a different different perspective, if you will. With that, Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, your football playing days because, uh, you know, you you have a very special distinction in your football career at Navy. First of all, as an Army guy, boo Navy, go Army. Uh, (laughs) It was was rivalry. It was was a long time coming. Uh, You were on the Navy team that happened to beat Notre Dame back in, what was it, 09, I think it was? Or was it 2010? Let's see. It was
0: 2007, 2008, and 2010. No, I was saying. No, yeah, it was freshman sophomore. I was trying to just put the name or the uh, the dates with the, the class years. Yeah, freshman, sophomore, and senior year.
1: So bigger, hey. bigger, exhilarating feeling. Surviving combat deployment or beating Notre Dame.
0: Well, I definitely have to say that uh, that, that combat, surviving combat, and and those those learning curves, uh, that that was definitely a, a major feat. And happy to to have had the opportunity to do that. Um, but I will say that the the highs of, of beating Notre Dame, especially at Notre Dame, uh, when they were ranked sophomore year, they were ranked 19th in the country. We weren't, and beating them on their turf uh, with touchdown Jesus in the background was it was a pretty amazing experience.
1: When you talked earlier about you know the adrenaline rush of combat and you know all the things that go on and it's real, how similar was that to a football game?
0: Well, there's obviously a lot of parallels between football and, and the infantry or just the military in general because uh, you learn teamwork, you learn focus, you learn mental toughness, you learn stamina, uh, both mentally and physically, and and so it football definitely prepared me, and I, I think that's one of the ways that I relate and one of the reasons why I decided to do what I'm doing is because of the parallels, like I said, and and just the mentality, the the type of guys that, that I was surrounded with growing up, even uh, Pop Warner football, high school football uh, all the way through college to being back around the same type of tough nosed hard nosed guys that just want to get out there and, and get stuff done. Uh, So I think that prepared me mentally and kind of framed my, My reference for how the the type of leader that I knew I already was but how I needed to be in certain scenarios whether it's you know day-to-day garrison training or out during a workup or actually in uh, Afghanistan or even in Japan I mean Japan was a different beast because that was more so like Kent Lejeune which is where I was stationed in North Carolina forward if you will uh, to just training during the weeks and having some liberty time off so it was a broad spectrum of of uh, ways that you had to go about folks and guys and, and different missions and different ways to prepare, and football definitely does that.
1: Tougher times, two-a-days in the summer or boredom in a deployment?
0: Definitely the, definitely the two-a-days in, in the heat, which I just saw. I think they've banned two-a-days yeah. uh, in, in the CAAs now, which is uh, not – don't want to say that we're getting softer, uh, but
1: – We're changing.
0: It, yeah, we're <laughs> We're adapting.
1: When you look back on your football career, do you think you'd be as successful as a Marine officer without playing football?
0: Um, I don't know if – so I guess one of the things that we all had in common, whether guys played college football or not, uh, and just in my class in particular going through infantry training, was either played a physical sport growing up or interpersonal violence, wrestling, uh, you know, boxing, something like that, or, uh, we're in outdoors, uh, an outdoors, um, uh, you know, whether it's fishing, hunting, backpacking, rock climbing, anything like that, they kind of give you that, that field craft nature, if you will get with your hands, understand how to carry weight packs, um, you know, how to survive, I guess, if you will, outside, which was kind of different than playing a contact sport, but both had their own, um, uh, their own perks for helping guys out through the training and to prepare. Uh, And so don't know if I would have been as uh, prepared, if you will. I think I was kind of naturally, I mean, I played baseball too uh, competitively growing up and kind of decided I wanted to play football once I was able to gain some size later in high school, but just having a chance to be a part of the team at a young age, having a chance to to be a leader early, kind of the team captain role, uh, being involved in uh, academic groups, in high school, uh, being involved in the church, um, going on, you know, kind of doing mission trips, spending time with like-minded individuals, people who were positive in nature, who were, you know, wanted to get done things done, wanted to, to go to college, wanted to make a difference. I think surrounding myself with those types of individuals and having the, the, the parenting, um, that I was fortunate enough to receive growing up, um, would have made the difference as well, because I wouldn't say it was all only football that helped me, to be successful as a leader of Marines. Uh, but it was a combination of my upbringing and everything that I was able to pick, uh, pick out along the way to, to put in my little toolkit.
1: Well, Trey, uh, I'm sure your parents are very proud, obviously. We're proud of you. We thank you for your service and, you know, especially the job you're doing now, um, honoring those who have come before us who are who are no longer with us and certainly keeping the memories of, the, of those alive who are unfortunately still dying in combat around the globe. Uh, thank you so much for everything that you've done. Appreciate your time, as always, here on the podcast, and we look forward to speaking with you in the future.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.